Please listen carefully. The lives of every man Ukrainians are, are kind of fallen by the wayside. That's Tanya Lockett, a Ukrainian academic. Because nobody wants to go and report on those when you have all these wonderful spider webs of, you know, who is Mr. Putin and all the people that are connected to him. Those seem like much more important things than just talking to ordinary people on the streets. And that's upsetting. And that was a sneak peek of what we have in store for you in this episode of The Week That Was at Global Voices, the podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. I'm Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And I'm Sahar, managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of the Global Voices newsroom. This week, we have our contributors Tanya Lockett and Isaac Webb here to give some nuance to the tense situation between Ukraine and Russia. We'll also tell you stories of ordinary people fighting injustice in Singapore, India, and Brazil. And returning to Ukraine, we'll hear a dispatch from Global Voices Executive Director Ivan Sigel about the uncomfortable peace in one Ukrainian city not far from the front lines of war. But before we get to those stories, let's turn to Ukraine and Russia. Recently, there's been a spike in hostility between these two not-so-friendly neighbors. Ukraine's president, Petro Poroshenko, even warned, at least according to the media, that a full-scale invasion from Russia is possible. How did we get here? Well, more than two years ago, a protest movement dubbed Yormedan led to revolution in Ukraine. Ukraine's president, Viktor Yanukovych, was deposed. His decision to back away from the European Union in favor of closer ties with Russia was the spark that ignited the demonstrations. Turmoil soon followed revolution. Russia seized a peninsula on the northern coast of the Black Sea called Crimea, which belonged to Ukraine. Russian officials justified the move, saying they needed to protect ethnic Russians from far-right extremists. Pro-Russian protests broke out in eastern Ukrainian cities, too, which then spiraled into full-blown war between separatists and the Ukrainian government. Russia has fueled the confrontations by supplying weapons and manpower. The fighting has ebbed and flowed, as have the tensions between Ukraine and Russia. Which brings us up to the present. A couple of weeks ago, at the beginning of August, the Russian security services said that they had captured some Ukrainian saboteurs uh, on the Crimean Peninsula. That's Isaac Webb, who just recently joined the Global Voices team as co-editor of the Runet Echo Project which interprets the Russian-speaking web. He's a writer and editor based in Kiev, who's originally from the U.S. He's also a former Fulbright Fellow in Ukraine and Junior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And this was seen by many in the West as some kind of pretext for war, perhaps in the East uh, or elsewhere. And I think that's kind of where some of these claims from Ukrainian Pe- President Petro Poroshenko come from him saying, you've captured our, our alleged saboteurs who are allegedly planning terrorist attacks in Crimea. These are kind of dubious claims. Uh, and then you kind of start these relatively significant buildups on the Ukrainian border. Now, a couple weeks on, it doesn't seem to have been the pretext for war, but rather the pretext for negotiations over this conflict. 
there's been a ceasefire agreement uh, agreed upon on September 1st um, and has been relatively kind of more or less observed for the, for the past couple days. A couple soldiers have been killed, but at a far kind of lower rate than in the previous couple months. So when Poroshenko says that there's a full-scale invasion afoot, um, I think that's perhaps a little bit overestimating the threat right now. The Ukrainian government is set to meet with the French, Russian, and German governments uh, to discuss some kind of more durable ceasefire agreement, um, like the one signed in February of 2015 called the kind of second Minsk agreement, it's called. Um, and it's, it's worth noting, I'm just going to jump in here to say that you know, Isaac just mentioned that there was actually a, a previous ceasefire agreement. And that's Tanya Lockett, an academic at Dublin City University in Ireland. She is originally from Ukraine. Tanya has a PhD from the Philip Merrill College of Journalism in the US, where she studied the convergence of information communication technology and political protest within the Euromedan movement. And until recently, she was the co-editor of Rune and Echo. I mean, allegedly, after they signed that one, there was also supposed to be a ceasefire, and at first it was also observed pretty well. But then, very slowly, um, there were more and more altercations, more and more sort of shots fired across these arguable borders between the Russian-supported separatists and Russian forces and Ukrainian forces. So the trick here is, you know, oh, okay, Ukraine and Russia, uh, with the help of other European powers, signed a ceasefire agreement some time ago, so it's no longer news. And so it falls out of the news agenda, nobody's really reporting on it anymore, and so nobody really, kind of, people just forget that there's something going on. And then suddenly when there's this new sort of flare-up and these new provocations and Russia is saying, oh, you know, Ukrainian spies in Crimea, and Ukraine is saying, well, Crimea is Ukraine and it's also occupied by Russia, so what, what are you even talking about? What spies? And, you know, that this is just an attempt by Russia to force, uh, kind of force their hand um, and engage in more negotiations. And then they sign a new ceasefire agreement. It does bring the whole thing back into the news, which I think is good. But also, you know, you do need to recognize that actually it's not like there wasn't anything happening. There were um, altercations. People were dying on both sides. Civilians were getting hurt. So it's not like there hasn't been a conflict simmering. It's now been two years since the war between Ukrainian forces and Russia-backed separatists in Ukraine's Donetsk and Luhansk regions began. According to the United Nations, more than 9,000 people have been killed and more than 22,000 injured. The conflict has also inflicted immeasurable psychological trauma on soldiers and civilians alike. On my side, I mean, I'm from eastern Ukraine myself, so I have a lot of friends and some family who were heavily affected by um, by the conflict, and a lot of them have to move. And, I mean, you know, for, for them, th those people and the rest of Ukrainians, they, they fall into different camps. You know, there are people who are proponents of negotiations and a peaceful solution, and then there are people um, who very much believe that, you know, the, the military solution is, is the, the best solution, and who are saying, you should stop negotiating with the Russians because they're not going to honor any agreements and they're just going to keep forcing their, uh, you know, their, their position of strength. And so what we should do is we should make the United States and, and Western Europe give us more arms, give us, uh, you know, lethal uh, arms and just, just kind of basically engage in the war further and force the Russia, uh, Russian and pro-Russian forces out. 
And these camps, you know, most people fall somewhere um, on a scale between these two extremes, either, you know, peaceful negotiation or military conflict. But I think what the majority uh, of Ukrainians agree on is that this is a, this is a war. And the fact that, you know, the Ukrainian government doesn't want to officially call it a war and calls it an anti-terrorist operation, um, because otherwise it wouldn't be able to, you know, continue its ongoing reforms and get all the international help that it's currently getting. And, you know, of course, Russia doesn't want to call it a war because Russia has never acknowledged that it's uh, actually on the Ukrainian territory and along the Ukrainian border and it's massing its troops there. Um, I think most Ukrainians are actually quite upset at how sort of this conflict has been kind of diluted and, and has kind of gone off, uh, off the agenda. I think you hit the nail on the head in saying that, um, you know, it's important not to paint Ukrainians with one brush, you know, with one stroke. Uh, and there is a diversity of opinion among Ukrainians. That being said, I think you're also right that across regional, social, different kind of cultural divides, there is a focus still uh, on the war in the East. Uh, and public opinion surveys show it over and over. The security situation in Ukraine and the war in the East are by far the most important issues for Ukrainians. Those come before, say, pensions, before other quality of life issues, despite the fact that uh, Ukrainians are poorer and poorer, the economy is still suffering. The poverty rate in Ukraine is 24.3% according to the United Nations Development Program. And with the exception of Kiev, Kiev is, I think at this point, uh, there's a lot of international investment in Kiev, there's um, salaries are higher, there's been kind of a um, growing middle class in Kiev centered around the IT sector, but outside Kiev uh, things are actually pretty bad. So the average monthly salary in Ukraine now is about $200 a month and if you take out Kiev it's much lower. Um, so I think although Tanya's right and definitely there's this huge focus on, on the war in the East, uh, there are some kind of simmering social issues which I think are very sad and um, if you talk to people on the street or you know talk to pensioners or talk to talk to the kind of average Ukrainian, um, there are some very serious um, social and economic issues that they're facing themselves. A good friend of mine, his, uh, his father is a former liquidator, they're called in uh, Chernobyl, he was one of the first responders to go in and so he has been on a government pension for quite some time and he gets I think around 2,000 hryvnia a month, uh, which would come out to like, I don't know, 75 or $80 uh, a month from that. Uh, his wife, my friend's mother, works full-time as a cook in Cherkasy Oblast, uh, which is a region south of Kiev, uh, and makes even less than that despite working full-time. So together, their monthly salary, I believe, is less than $200 a month. According to the Wage Indicator Foundation, the lower bound of a living wage in Ukraine for an individual person is around 180 U.S. dollars per month. For a family, it's about 270 dollars. Um, this is incredibly difficult because it's not as though prices have fallen considerably. There has been some inflation, uh, a lot of inflation, uh, but I think life is just very difficult, and that's um, I think that's manifested in a number of ways. Uh, people have a difficult time accessing healthcare. People have, well, you know, the access that they do have is often comes through personal family connections or bribes. Um, it's one of the kind of main sectors for corruption in Ukraine. Um, so the the opportunity to to get good healthcare, to get a good education, I think that these are 
they're just very difficult to come by if you're not in Kiev and if you don't have money. Yeah, and I think just sort of based on, you know, the conversations that I hear, again, you know, Kiev is doing better um, than some of the other regions, but then you also have to remember that there are now hundreds of thousands of internally displaced persons, so, you know, over, there are, there's over a million people from the Luhansk and Donetsk regions in the east who have gone either to other places in Ukraine or to places in Russia, depending on where they have family or any opportunities to make a new life. According to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, the fighting in eastern Ukraine has forced 1.7 million people to leave their homes and seek sanctuary elsewhere in the country. That's about 3% of the entire population of Ukraine. Um, and, and, you know, those people are also now very often left sort of at the mercy of the state um, and whatever welfare it can offer them. And, you know, those people are also not super happy with how the state has been supporting them and, you know, all the sort of bureaucratic quandaries um, involved in getting any, any form of support or access to health care or getting a job and things like that. So that's also an issue. Um, and then at the same time, you know, we have the government saying, yes, we want you to be patriots and we want you to support what Ukraine is, is doing for its citizens. But at the same time, you can, you can feel like there's, there's quite a lot of this sort of fatigue where, where people just aren't feeling the support. And, you know, just in, in many cases, just like Isaac just described, these people who, who are struggling to make a living. So their, their patriotism is kind of you know, not, not their first priority, really. And I think it's an interesting question. What is the social contract between the Ukrainian government and the people now? Uh, it seemed like for the first two years after the Russian invasion in 2014, it was based on, um, you know, we, pre we protect you, we wage war against Russia, uh, and we have your patriotism. Um, now that people are obviously still concerned with the war in the East, but maybe less willing to accept a lower standard of living, how does that social contract change? And I think that's going to be an important question in the next couple months and years is uh, if Ukraine can, is not able to deliver the kind of social benefits that Tanya was talking about, what does it have to offer the people? Right. And I think putting, putting my protest scholar hat on here, we also remember that the, the government that is and the president that is in power now, they mostly came into power because, you know, those spots were vacated after the protest when the previous government officials ran off uh, or were deposed. So, you know, people were willing to give them some benefit of a doubt for a while. You know, it's been over two years since Euromaidan um, ended, but people also expect them to deliver, um, deliver on reforms, deliver on cleaning up, the, you know, the corruption and all the networks the business, uh, the, all the dirty stuff that was there before. And sadly, you know, that, that has happened to some extent, but not nearly as much as people, I think, in general expected. So that's also another part of the social contract, right, is we expect you, we, we gave you this opportunity to run the country because we wanted you to, to you know, to engage in, in large-scale reforms. And, and now it's like a lot of the people in the government once they're in power, they're doing everything they can to slow down the process of reforms. And this has been especially visible in, say, the judiciary or um, in some of the other sectors like government procurement, healthcare, other, other, other places. So I think that's also a big issue. In this recent or this latest quote-unquote flare-up of tensions between 
Russia and Ukraine, how has Western media done in its coverage? And how does it compare to the lens through which local Ukrainian media is covering it and how Russian media is covering it? I'll start with the Western coverage, uh, which I think has been not bad. It's just been uh, there hasn't been enough of it. Uh, and so in the last, I would say, since February of 2015 or so, uh, coverage has really fallen off, and that was the time of the last the peace agreement and the, and the time when the, there was the kind of most recent bout of very intense fighting. So it's difficult to kind of be the watchdog for reform, and the, the government in Kiev is very keyed in to the perception of its uh, reform process in the West. Uh, and so when... New York Times op-eds are being written, and there's there are a couple good examples of this. Often the president will respond directly to allegations of um, either corruption or, in one case, uh, a list of journalists who had been involved uh, in reporting in eastern Ukraine uh, was released with their contact information and their addresses and their phone numbers. And so when that happened, and some in the Ukrainian government didn't immediately condemn it, a journalist named Ian Bateson wrote a very good op-ed in the New York Times. Just a couple days later, Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president, uh, responded uh, and said that this release of information was unacceptable and kind of shut that down. So I think from that perspective, the Western media has a lot to offer uh, because of the attention that the Ukrainian government uh, is paying to kind of international perception. At the same time, there just hasn't been enough coverage. Um, yeah, and I think um, in terms of sort of Russia's presence here, you know, Russia is now involved in, in many more conflicts than just the one in Ukraine. It's also very, um, very deeply involved in what's going on in Syria. You know, it has sort of the other pressure points. So even um, the Georgian 2008 uh, conflict, which resulted in some other questionable territories uh, that are now sort of under Russian control. So all of that is being brought into the picture now, right? So I think it's become more difficult for, um, for those who are reporting on, on Russia and its sort of meddling in international affairs to get a clear idea of what, <laughs> what it is that they're doing because, you know, there's Ukraine, there's Syria, there's other stuff. And then given the fact that, you know, for instance, in the U.S., a lot of uh, the coverage of Russia and Russia as a player in the international arena is now also being colored by what's happened uh, during the uh, run-up to the U.S. elections. You know, all these hacks um, of you know the Democratic Convention and, and other 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 uh, players that are alleged to be done by Russian hackers and hackers close to the Russian government or secret services. So. You know, there, there, there are all these very complicated connections that are coloring reporting on Ukraine um, and, and Russian involvement in the conflict, and, you know, that, that are coloring all various, various sort of connections between Russia, the West, or the U.S., and Ukraine. And, and that is also true of, um, say, the, the Russian media, and not just the Russian language media in Russia, but also the English language Russian media like Russia Today, they are very attentive towards any connections or revelations about, for instance, you know, Ukrainian officials or Ukrainian activists and um, any U.S. or Western support they get, because that's, you know, immediately classified as, you know, anti-Russian. 
and that falls very neatly into this whole um, narrative of, oh, the West, and especially the U.S., is out to get Russia, and they want to destroy the Russian state. It's all, it's all kind of part of a bigger narrative, and on the one hand, that's good because, you know, some, some connections emerge that weren't there before, and it allows for more comprehensive reporting if the reporters are willing to do the work. On the other hand, the things that Isaac was just talking about, you know, things like the lives of everyman Ukrainians are, are kind of falling by the wayside because nobody wants to go and report on those when you have all these wonderful spider webs of, you know, who is Mr. Putin and all the people that are connected to him. Those seem like much more important things than just talking to ordinary people on the streets. And that's upsetting because some of the more interesting reports have actually been done by at least the reports by um, Western journalists. I mean, the ones that I thought were good are actually those reports where they go and talk to people, where they go into people's homes. There, there really is a lack of, of this in-depth human interest reporting and these stories that would really bring the tragedy of the conflict, but also the sort of resilience of people to a, a global audience. And I'll just kind of add on that, that one, one of the main ways that these kind of human interest stories funnel to Western journalists is through the Ukrainian media. media. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, over the past several months, um, we've seen not a crackdown on media by any stretch, but journalists being subjected to threats. Um, one of Ukraine's most famous uh, journalist was killed in a car bombing incident in July, and then just a couple days ago. There was an attack on a Ukrainian TV station uh, where their building was set on fire. I think that uh, often Ukrainian journalists face kind of backlash for doing reports from the front and for portraying the region there in, in um, a way that might be unflattering to the Ukrainian government. So I think that there's, there's definitely the Western issue, but there's also a kind of domestic journalistic context that needs to be taken into mind because so much of what Western reporters do is based on the hard work that Ukrainian journalists do. And they're, Absolutely. Yeah, they're less able to do their jobs now. Yeah, and, and I think that there's, there's been this sort of fascinating but also kind of troubling discussion among Ukrainian journalists because by no means do they all take the same position in terms of, you know, what should journalism be like when the country is in the situation that it's in. And, you know, some journalists say that, well, no, we should still remain objective and, and question everyone and report on things that might make the government look bad because, you know, if it did something bad or didn't do something, then we should report on it. And then there's the other kind uh, of journalists who say, well, no, we need to be patriots of our own country, and it's actually problematic when we, when we make the government look bad because that reflects badly on all of Ukraine and it undermines our efforts. So there's this really fascinating discussion and I think it's going to be interesting to look at it from the point of view of like ethics and, and sort of like what is journalism in, in a country that is, you know, facing, facing a conflict uh, on its own soil and, you know, somebody else taking over parts of it but also, you know, is also trying at the same time to, to reform itself and to, you know, to make its economy grow and to make its citizens more profitable. And I think that it's also probably good to note that these conversations that Ukrainian journalists are having about the role of media and the extent to which uh, media should be a check on the government are happening, it's within kind of the Russian context as well, where mm -hmm. Russian media are kind of being 
you're clamped down on more and more. Uh, the ind independent media are being sold off or moved abroad. And so there is, I won't say viable, but there is a model for journalism that seems to be developing in Russia. Uh, and for, I think, a lot of kind of hardline Ukrainians, uh, it's an appealing model because it's one that portrays their government and their country in an exclusively positive light. And so I think it's a really important conversation that's going on right now. I, I, I'm happy to see it happening, but a little worried because of the model that's developed in Russia. Yeah, and I think the good thing about all of this is that this discussion is very public. I mean, at least in Ukraine, it is a pretty public discussion that's happening on social media, on in Facebook posts, on blog posts, on websites. You know, it, it may not always be super civil, but people are able to actually follow these discussions between journalists and civic activists and politicians and you know anybody can weigh in um, so I think that's that's very important and that's a big difference from say you know the pre-social media times when there there just simply wasn't uh, a, this wealth of public platforms upon which to discuss these issues you know I mean it's nice to have a talk show where you have three people who sit in a TV set and talk about it but it's it's, I think it's much more interesting and um, accessible when you have this happening on a platform where everybody can comment. Um, you guys kind of uh, touched on this a bit, but you know, this, this story is often presented, um, at least in Western media, as Ukraine versus Russia. Um, and you've both expressed that there's a spectrum of opinion on both sides. If we were to kind of um, pull this puzzle apart just for people on the outside to kind of understand, what other labels or groupings would you um, talk about specifically within Ukraine or Russia in the way that they approach um, the situation? So I would say that the most important kind of distinction or important uh, divide in Ukraine is, uh, is an age divide. And so I, I see like a very different Ukraine from, say, under 30 or under 35 versus over 30 or over 30, 35. When you think about the direction of you, that Ukraine's headed and um, the opinion of Ukraine as a whole, uh, it's important to take that divide in, in, into mind. Uh, I also think that there are a lot of Ukrainians right now who are either abroad or are being educated abroad. Uh, and I think that they'll return at some point uh, and they'll be a part of this younger generation of more liberal, um, kind of more Western-leaning uh, Ukrainians, and I think that's maybe that's uh, definitely a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think in in just in if in terms of sort of even the conflict itself, for one thing, it's really important to remember that if you compare Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine Ukraine didn't invade anyone. <laughs> Ukraine is basically for trying to protect its what was historically its own territory, both Crimea and you know parts of eastern Ukraine that have been occupied. And, and, and I mean, Ukrainians, you know, obviously, even in, even in the occupied parts of Ukraine, in Donetsk and Luhansk, it's not like everybody who is left there is pro-Russian or pro-separatist. There are quite a lot of pro-Ukrainian people who just aren't, aren't, for various reasons, able to leave, either because they have, you know, sick relatives or they don't have anywhere to go or they don't have any money, but that doesn't mean that they support the separatist regime. And on the other hand, there are quite a lot of people who live in government-controlled Ukraine who sympathize with Russia. Um, and in Russia also, I mean, it's the same, the same thing, you know, I mean, of course there's a generational divide and, you know, there's this whole issue of uh, Soviet nostalgia and kind of uh, that nostalgia for a strong state, which the Russian government is now exploiting very heavily. But a lot of Russians don't really care 
about a strong state. I mean, it's a nice thing to have when, you know, it's nice to be able to feel that your country is strong on the world stage. But I think a lot of Russians really genuinely care about, you know, having enough enough to live and being able to live comfortably and, you know, go on vacations and that sort of thing. You know, and for, for a time, uh, Vladimir Putin's government was playing on exactly that. That was its main sort of um, slogan politically, you know, that yes, we are, we are working to have a stable Russia, a Russia that will make its citizens comfortable. And I think this turn towards this sort of militarized rhetoric of Russia as a, as a, as a, as a state that is trying to reclaim its uh, power on the world stage is, is kind of, has kind of been gradual. Putin didn't start with that when he became president. Right. So, so that's that's kind of on the the high level. But on the like I said, on the citizen level, you know, there are generational differences, and there are genuinely just there are a lot of Russians who don't support you know Russia's meddling in Ukraine, and but then there are a lot who do. So I think it's really important to underscore that you know there is a wealth of difference in what both Ukrainians and Russians think about this conflict and about what their governments are doing right or doing wrong. And I think that, that those ideas about what their governments are doing is changing. Um, and so I think there were a lot of Ukrainians who were very kind of anti-Russian at the beginning of this war, rightly so. Their, their country had been invaded. Uh, but now that you know, it's, it's been a couple of years, I think in particular some of the southern regions uh, of Ukraine, there's less antipathy towards Russia. Uh, you talk to some people who, granted this, I wouldn't say that this is a, a kind of widespread opinion, but some people really do see Putin's authoritarianism, this kind of building a great Russian state and maybe providing pensions to people uh, as a model that they kind of want to, part, want to be a part of, uh, especially when you see the weakness of the Ukrainian state. I don't, again, that's not, I don't think, uh, the majority opinion by any stretch, but that's just to underscore that there are, there is a diversity of opinions. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think in, that's one kind of not failing of Western media, but challenge uh, that it faces is to is to speak of Ukrainian public opinion. It is not unified, nor has it ever been, and that presents challenges. Yeah, and I think another important distinction that I've seen a lot of people make is that your attitude towards the Russian state and the Russian officials is not the same as your attitude towards Russians. Russians mm-hmm. and Ukrainians, traditionally, there's been quite a lot of familial ties there. I mean, you know, um, people have family, they have friends in Russia and Ukraine. And I think for, for many of those people, you know, this, this has been a real tragedy because, you know, suddenly just because you're of a certain nationality, somebody is viewing you as an enemy, when in fact, really, you're still friends and you're still family. So I, there's been quite a lot of sort of familial strife, but also a lot of people have used this opportunity to come and go on social media and say, hey, don't equate Putin or Russian officials or, you know, Russian soldiers and generals, don't equate them with the Russian people. And, you know, they've made a point of saying, you know, I'm still friends with my Russian friends because, you know, they they are friends with me and they understand my position and they support me. Um, So I think that that has been really good to see. And it was really funny during the latest Eurovision contest when, you know, they changed the judging system. And so there were expert judges from each country who were giving points and then there was audience voting and so Ukraine and Russia of course the judges gave zero points to each other but the people actually voted quite highly so I think Ukraine put Russia into like 11 out of 12 and Russia gave Ukraine 10 out of 12 so that was quite quite interesting to see.
Eurovision is, of course, that very famous, very colorful international song competition that takes over television screens once a year. In 2016, Ukrainian viewers actually awarded 12 out of 12 points to Russia, not 11. And Russian viewers did give Ukraine 10 points. This in the midst of a war. I think that's all we have for you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. That was fun. <laughs> Manaono, that's hello in Malagasy. I'm Luva Rakoto Malala. I'm with the Francophone Region team at Global Voices. Are you liking this podcast? You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and many other podcast apps. Be sure to subscribe, give us an upvote, or leave us a comment. Sota Pizak. Thank you. Brazil isn't exactly basking peacefully in the afterglow of hosting the Olympics. At the end of August and beginning of September, thousands of people took to the streets after the country's Senate overwhelmingly voted to remove Dilma Rousseff from the presidency. She was found guilty of manipulating the federal budget to hide a growing recession. Protesters weren't necessarily demanding her reinstatement, but the majority were calling for new elections. You see, 61% of Brazil's 81 senators have been convicted or investigated for corruption, and this impeachment was seen as a power grab to protect themselves. Police responded violently, unleashing stun grenades, tear gas, and rubber bullets against demonstrators. One university student was hit in the face by shrapnel. After hospital stay, she wrote on Facebook that she had been blinded in one of her eyes. It's not the first time that police in Brazil have met protesters with violence. It's not even the first time they've blinded someone. Just a week before the Senate voted Dilma Rousseff out, Global Voices contributor Rafael Safco Garcia told us about another case, that of Sergio Andrade da Silva, a Brazilian photographer who lost his left eye after being shot with a rubber bullet by a military police officer a few years ago. Sergio had been covering a massive demonstration in Sao Paulo in June 2013 when he was shot. Participants there and across Brazil at the time were demanding better public services, especially in the run-up to the 2014 World Cup, which Brazil hosted. After losing his eye, Sergio sued the state of Sao Paulo, asking for 1.2 million Brazilian reais in damages. That's about 375,000 US dollars. He also wanted a monthly pension and money to cover all of his medical expenses. In the middle of August this year, his lawsuit finally went to court, and a judge denied his request. The judge reasoned that Sergio had himself to blame for getting shot because he, quote, put himself in the line of confrontation between police and protesters. On social media, Brazilians use the hashtag guilty of photographing to criticize the judge's decision. Many argue that it was yet another case of Brazil's military police acting violently and getting away with it. Journalists and protesters aren't the only targets. According to human rights groups, military police officers often kill black residents of the country's slums with impunity. Others contrasted the case with that of Brazilian TV cameraman Santiago Andrade, who died in 2014 after being hit by a firecracker while covering protests. 
The difference, however, was that two protesters launched the firecracker, and prosecutors are going after them for it. Sergio is demanding that Sao Paulo's Court of Appeals review the judge's decision. I choose to resist, he said in a petition on change.org, and I know I have many people by my side. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Sana, Pakistan editor for Global Voices. Want to read more about the stories we mentioned in this podcast? You'll find them and more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter at Global Voices, and on facebook.com slash globalvoicesonline. On August 25th, in the wee hours of the morning, Zana Maji wrapped his wife's lifeless body in pieces of cloth. He then hoisted her body on his shoulders and set out for his village some 60 kilometers away. His 12-year-old daughter was with him. Zana said he had no choice. His wife, Amangade Manji, had died of tuberculosis at a government hospital in the Indian state of Odisha. According to reports, the hospital asked him to take her body away but denied him the use of a free mortuary van. The poor tribal farmer did not have enough money to rent a vehicle, so he decided to carry the body on his shoulder to the village for her ritual cremation. After Donna and his daughter walked about 10 kilometers with the body, the sun began to rise and people along their route began to wake up and notice them. In one village, locals stepped in to help. They pulled some strings and arranged an ambulance for him. They also managed to collect some donations to be put towards the funeral. But not before a TV journalist named Ajit Singh filmed Dana carrying his wife's body on his shoulders. The video went viral, and internet users in India exploded with anger over the failings of the healthcare system. Aparajita Mishra on the blog Being Indian asked, When Dana was carrying the corpse with his crying daughter, people assisted him by calling some influential people. Why do we rely on the crutches of power to get the job done? The hospital has since claimed that Dana walked away with her body without informing them. Even so, Dana is not the only person to face such treatment from a public health facility. On September 2nd, in a different area of the state of Odisha, a man had to walk six kilometers carrying his seven-year-old daughter's body. He had been traveling in an ambulance, but when the ambulance staff found out that the girl had died en route to the hospital, they asked her parents to get out and take their daughter with them. And the Odisha Human Rights Commission is also probing an incident in which hospital workers allegedly broke the corpse of an 85-year-old widow at the hip so they could carry her in a bundle. Among India's 19 states, Odisha ranks close to the bottom of the Human Development Index. The state does have structures in place that are supposed to help people who can't afford to conduct last rites or transport a body but clearly they aren't working as they should. In the 2014 general election, the now ruling political party of India campaigned on the slogan Achi Din, which means good times. After video of Dana carrying his wife's body went viral, T.S. Sudhir, a contributing editor at Huffington Post India, made the following comment. Frankly, if these are Achi Din, India was better off in the dark ages. This story was originally reported on the Global Voices website by our South Asia editor, Rezwan. When I decided to leave my country, the hardest part was leaving my family. 
When I looked at my children, it broke my heart. My husband's teary eyes tore me apart. I arrived here full of hope. I prayed day by day so I could cope. With three houses to clean in a week, rice and eggs for my meals, it really made me weak. My sleeping area was inadequate. Although I had a mattress, a pillow, and a blanket, besides the fish tank was my place to sleep. Every night I told the fish, you're lucky you have a crib. These are the first stanzas of a poem by Bing Navato, a foreign domestic worker in Singapore. It was published on an online platform called My Voice, where migrant workers like her can write and upload their stories, articles, photographs, and poetry. An advocacy group named the Humanitarian Organization for Migrant Economics, or HOME, is behind the initiative. Our Southeast Asia editor, Mon Palatino, originally reported this story on the Global Voices website. Many of the stories and poems published on My Voice are heartbreaking testimonies that are seldom heard or reported in Singapore. According to government data, the city-state of Singapore is home to 1.3 million registered foreign workers. More than 200,000 of these people are domestic workers, mainly from neighboring countries like the Philippines, Indonesia, Myanmar, and India. The majority are young women who left impoverished families behind in their respective countries to seek better opportunities in Singapore. In recent years, cases of employers abusing domestic workers have been on the rise. Despite new laws designed to protect domestic workers' rights, last month, a Singaporean news website reported a story about the slave-like conditions of more than 9,000 foreign workers. Some of the writing published on the My Voice platform captures the maltreatment, like this by an Indonesian woman named Desi, who explains, Though clueless about Singapore when I arrived in 2014, I was filled with hope. But only a few days into my work, my employer started to abuse me very badly. A friend helped me escape after seeing the fear in my eyes and black and blue swelling on my face. Other poems and articles speak of workers' determination to assert their rights. But starting this day, I'm standing for myself, writes Rosita Madrid Sanchez. I'm standing for my kids and I'm standing for their future, for my future. Stop discrimination. Stop being blindfolded. What is it like to live near war? For the residents of the Ukrainian city of Mariupol, it means being caught uncomfortably in a middle ground, where peace reigns, but the threat of conflict looms large. Global Voices Executive Director Ivan Sickle worked in media development in the former Soviet Union and Asia for 10 years. In July, he took a trip to Mariupol and detailed his visit in a piece for Global Voices. Here he is narrating part of his dispatch. The city of Mariupol, Ukraine's line in the sand. The city of Mariupol in Ukraine sits 20 kilometers from the front line, between the Russian-backed separatists and the Ukrainian military. It's a city at peace, but close enough to hear the war. Fighting has recently increased, and the residents can hear mortars and rocket fire when the wind blows from the east from the front-line towns of Shirokone and Novotroitske. The Ukrainians have made the defense of Mariupol their line in the sand. It's a port city with crucial transport infrastructure, access to the Sea of Azov, and two huge steel plants. It's also the city the Russians would need to capture for land access to Crimea, which would secure the strategic viability of their claim to that territory. In July, I spent a long week in Mariupol walking the city, taking photos, engaging people's attitude towards the conflict and their own circumstances. 
I wanted to see if I could explain and depict the pressure that comes from living this close to the front. Before the war, residents of Mariupol largely felt themselves to be part of Russian culture, and some helped in the separatist effort in 2014 and 2015. This part of Ukraine had voted overwhelmingly for former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych. Now, however, the effects of the war and the politics and the lives of people are evident. Being part of Russia might have been attractive, but affiliation with the pariah semi-state, not so much. The result is a kind of weariness. Many residents with whom I spoke recognize the dangers of associating with the separatist movement and the isolation that would result. Ukrainian troops, together with militias, control the city and the airport and has reinforced the front. The Russians, of course, still have a much stronger military, but there's no guarantee that the local population would support them and the Ukrainian force has had time to learn how to fight. Mariupol was calm throughout the time I was there and remains so. Lately, however, Moscow has reportedly increased weapons transfers into the separatist enclaves, and it has been spinning a line about the ceasefire being functionally dead. These moves create an atmosphere of moral permissiveness that makes renewed conflict a distinct possibility. And whether or not Russia does decide to invade, the Kremlin's rhetoric creates tactical space. Russia could theoretically prepare for and even justify an invasion, or it could simply wield more power at the negotiating table the next time leaders sit down for peace talks. With this behavior, Moscow is again testing resistance to its assertion of regional dominance in Ukraine. And that's a wrap. This is Lauren. And Sahar. Wondering how we found these stories? Well, we're not like other news organizations. Global Voices is an international network of passionate, plugged-in people. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and translate them into more than 30 languages. The incredible work of all our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors made this episode possible. So, a big thank you to all of you out there. Don't forget, if you like what you heard, please share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazzer, In the Darkness, No Voices by VYVCH, Your Pulse by Little Glassmen, White Cloud by Krakatoa, Golden, also by Little Glassmen, Waking Stars by Kai Engel, and Lovely, Lonely, Instrumental by Yeah Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the week that was at Global Voices. We'll have a new episode for you in two weeks. Until then.